Well, it is so good to be here with you today. What a joy to already be able to sing this great hymn and to join our voices and our hearts together. I'm very much looking for the time that we have that we will spend together today and tomorrow and Thursday. And with my students back on Friday morning, uh, students at RTS, as we begin this conference, Kevin, who came to our conference in Atlanta, encouraged me to begin each day by actually modeling uh, expository preaching and by preaching a passage to you. Of course, it's a humbling thing to stand before other preachers and to model preaching. And nevertheless, I'm very excited to do so. In fact, I personally um, have found that the greatest preaching that God has ever allowed me to be a part of has been to preach to other pastors. And so uh, in conferences around the country as well as overseas, if I could preach to one group, it would always be to preach to pastors, to fellow preachers. And so that's what uh, we want to do. Of course, uh, to select a passage, I think it would be most appropriate for us to look together at a passage that is uniquely targeted towards expository preaching. And so the passage that I have selected is a passage with which you are very familiar. And so I trust that as we look at this passage, that your eye will still be very attentive and your heart very receptive because I need to hear myself say what I'm about to say and to remind myself of these essential truths of the call of God upon our lives to preach the Word. So having said that, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this afternoon, I want us to look at verses 1 through 5. This would have to be the signature text on biblical preaching. I think that this passage stands out among all passages uh, that is uniquely known for being um, a special text for biblical preaching. So I want to begin by reading the passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, will be our focus. The Apostle Paul writes, I solemnly charge you, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, and we can almost see Paul pointing his finger out of that prison to Timothy, who is on the outside, but you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famed expositor of Westminster Chapel, London, stated years ago while lecturing here in the United States at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Lloyd-Jones said, the most urgent need of the church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is the greatest need of the world also. Lloyd-Jones understood that the greatest influence in the church should be the pulpit, and the greatest influence in the world should be the church, such that when you reach the pulpit, 
you reach the church. And when you reach the church, you inevitably bring about the greatest influence that should be brought to bear upon the world that is the church unleashed in all of her power by the Holy Spirit. If a reformation is to come to the church, it must begin in the pulpit. Because as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. A strong pulpit leads inevitably to a strong church. And a weak pulpit leads inevitably to a weak church. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. No church will rise any higher than the power of the preached word that comes from that pulpit. The prophet Amos warned, though, of a coming time in his day when the pulpit would be weakened, and he said, a day is coming, says the Lord, a day of famine, not a famine for a drinking of water or for eating of food, but a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord. I believe that we are living in such days. I believe that there is a famine in the land in which you and I live for the hearing of the word of the Lord, and it is not restricted to our day as well. It is a global famine. And if we are to see a new reformation, if we are to see another golden era like the Puritans, if we are to see a great awakening as once shook this land back in the 18th century, there must be a revival that will take place in the pulpit and in the preaching of the Word of God. That is why I want us to look at this text this morning. I want it to speak to my heart. I want it to speak to your heart again, because these are Paul's final words that he will give to the outside world. The year is 67 AD, and Paul finds himself in his second Roman imprisonment. He has already suffered one Roman imprisonment. And from that, he wrote Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. He had uh, access to people coming and going as he was in house arrest. But Paul now, as he writes these words, finds himself back in Rome, and in this imprisonment, he will not escape. These are the last words to ever come from the pen of the Apostle Paul. In but a short time, he will be led out of solitary confinement. He is in a hole in the ground in the Mamertine prison. In a short time, he will be led out, and tradition tells us on the ocean way, his head will be severed. Last words should be lasting words. This is no time to speak on secondary matters. This is a time to focus on what is most important. This is the 13th epistle that Paul has written that finds its way into the canon of Scripture. This is the last chapter of the last epistle that will come from Paul. And this is a time for the main thing to be the main thing. As he writes to Timothy, he is also writing to you and to me down through the centuries. And it is a call for us to preach the Word of God. It is a call for us to uphold the standard of sound words and to proclaim it in our ministries. This has been a dominant theme, really, throughout Second Timothy. And still by way of introduction, I, I want to survey very quickly Second Timothy for us to see that as he writes this now in chapter 4, this is really the crescendo. This is really the climax of what he has been saying throughout this entire epistle. If you would turn back to chapter 1, just very briefly, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and in verse 11, as Paul identifies himself and reminds Timothy of his position in ministry, please note how Paul identifies himself. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 11, he says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Please note the order. I would have started with apostle. And then I would have moved to teacher. And then I would have ended with preacher in a, in a logical progression. 
But Paul puts preacher in the emphatic position in verse 11. Paul front loads his call to preach. And there is a sense in which if Paul had to forsake all of his other ministries and could only retain one ministry, it would have been the ministry of being a preacher of the Word of God. I agree with Martin Lloyd-Jones that there is no higher calling that can come upon any man upon this earth than the call to preach the Word of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, if God has called you to be His servant, why stoop to be a king? And the highest call there is under heaven is to be a mouthpiece for God and to proclaim His Word. And I trust that you and I will never apologize to people that we meet when they say, what do you do for a living? May we not mumble or stumble for an answer. May we say with godly humility, I am a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where Paul begins. Look at verse 13. As he is telling Timothy, what is the job description of the preacher? He says, retain the standard of sound words. That is to say, that which has been passed down to us through written Scripture and to Timothy, through written Scripture as well as the apostles' teaching, he is to retain it. He is not to add to it. He is not to subtract from it. He is to retain the deposit of truth that has been given to him, and he is to preach it. Look at the next verse, verse 14. Guard through the Holy Spirit who, in, who dwells in us the treasure which, you, which has been entrusted to you. That treasure is the deposit of truth that, that is found in the written Word of God for us, and He is to guard it. That is to say, there will be many attacks upon the truth. There will be many assaults that will come against it, but as a preacher, we are to fight the good fight, and we are to guard the truth. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2 as Paul continues this dominant emphasis, this dominant theme on preaching the Word. He says, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. And what he had heard was the preaching of the Word. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, Timothy is to be a middleman. Timothy is to be one who has received the preaching of the Word and then entrust it to other men and deploy them and delegate to them as they will go out and preach the Word. In verse 5, he compares the minister to an athlete who must compete according to the rules and the emphasis here upon the rules that are recorded in the Word of God. That is to say, we are to live the message that we bring. He will then say in verse 9, I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the Word of God is not imprisoned. Paul said, you can lock me up, but you cannot lock up the Word of God. The Word of God is invincible. The Word of God is triumphant. The Word of God cannot be stopped. In fact, the, seed of the, or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And even when we are resisted in our preaching of the Word, God by His sovereignty uses that to scatter the message even yet further. As we continue to look, look at verse 15, chapter 2. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Please note the work that is involved, the blood, sweat, toil, and tears to dig into the word of God, to master the truth and to be mastered by the truth, to cut it straight with the Word, to accurately handle it. Paul is saying to Timothy, this is at the heart of your calling. And then in chapter 2 and verse 24, the only skill that is required for this servant that goes beyond a character quality is the skill of being able to teach the Word. Everything else deals with a, an internal 
spiritual virtue, the one skill that the minister is to have is to be able to teach the Word of God. Now, this leads into chapter 3 and verse 15 and the emphasis that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. And in verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? For teaching. So as he comes now to this section in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, this has been the reoccurring dominant emphasis of this last communication from the Apostle Paul that comes down to Timothy, but by its place in the canon of Scripture, it comes down to every generation of preachers. Men, this is what God has called us to do. It is to take this book and to preach and to proclaim the message of this book. So as we look at this passage now, I want you to note three main headings of truth with me. I want you to note first the sobriety of this charge. That, that is in verse 1. And it is unimaginable that any charge could come with any greater gravity than what we read in verse 1. Then second, I want you to note the substance of this charge. That is found at the beginning of verse 2. What is the, the essence of this charge that has been laid at our feet? And then finally, the specifics, beginning in the middle of verse 2, extending through verse 3, Paul will tell Timothy how to preach. At the beginning of verse 2, he tells him what to preach. From then on, he will tell him how to preach. And I want you to know it matters to God how we preach His Word. It's not enough that we simply preach. And it's not enough that we simply preach His Word. There is a prescribed apostolic manner by which we are to deliver the message of the Word of God. And I want to draw that to your attention. There will be eight imperatives that will be like rapid-fire staccato fashion, and they define for us how we are to preach the Word. None of us is free to reinvent how to preach. None of us is free to preach however I want to preach. We are all men under a mandate that has been passed down to us from Christ through the apostle, and there is an injunction upon us that we preach in the prescribed manner. So that is where we are headed today. Please note first the sobriety of this charge. This is in verse 1. This charge could not be more solemn or more serious. He begins in verse 1, I solemnly charge you. Now, this verb solemnly charge carries the idea of a, of a forceful order that is placed upon Timothy that is binding upon his conscience, that is binding upon his life. It's really a military term as though it is coming down from, from headquarters through Paul to Timothy, this charge is being laid at his feet. And to intensify this charge, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He is bringing God to bear upon what he is saying, as though these very words are coming from God Himself, certainly being said in the presence of God and in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, as though the Godhead is watching with approval what Paul is now saying to Timothy and is now saying to us as well. Grammatically, this could read, in the presence of God, even Christ Jesus. And it could be a strong emphasis upon the deity of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. To yet further intensify this, he goes on to say, who is to judge the living and the dead? It is Jesus Christ himself who will, <clears throat> who will examine each man's ministry. It looks ahead to the last day, really, a final day of reckoning 
that every preacher will have when he stands before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. He alludes to that by continuing in verse 1, and by His appearing and by His kingdom. At the end of the age, when Jesus Christ appears, He will burst onto the scene. The Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. The trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And there we will stand at the great white throne judgment. And every preacher and every minister, as well as every Christian, will undergo the scrutiny of the Lord. And no sin will be brought up because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we will give an account to Jesus Christ as a servant gives an account to his master. And there we will come under the review of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will come under the scrutiny of the Lord Jesus Christ. James 3 verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. James is almost stiff-arming those who would enter into the office. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. We would ask the question, why? For we shall incur a stricter judgment. On that last day, every preacher and every minister will give an account directly to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. We will give an account for our doctrine. We will give an account for our exegesis and for our theology. We will give an account for our application. We will give an account to Him for our gospel presentation and for our gospel appeal. You and I will give an account not only for what we said, but for how we said it. We will stand before Him. You and I will not stand before our elder board. You and I will not stand before the denominational uh, hierarchical structure. You and I will not stand before our congregation. You and I will stand directly before the King of kings and the Lord of lords at His appearing and at His kingdom. And we will give an account to Him for the carrying out of the task that He has called us to do. I hope that this is how serious you take your call to the ministry. I trust that you are well aware that the lives of men and women are at stake as we preach the Word of God, and that it is not our Word, it is His Word, and on that last day, we will render our accountability to Him for how we accurately handled His Word. And this leads second, not only to the sobriety, but to the substance. Boil it down, bottom line. Three words that begin verse 2. Compressed down. Paul says, Timothy, this is what you must do. Preach the word. Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. Preach is the first of nine imperatives in a row. Preach is the first, and it is like the, the umbrella over the rest of the section. It's like the topic sentence of a paragraph. And the following eight will define how it is to be done, but this first one defines really the substance of this charge. Please note he does not say, share the word. Please note he does not say, act the word. He does not say, dramatize the word. He says, Timothy, you are to stand up like an adult, and you are to speak like a man, and you are to preach the Word. 
This is in the imperative, meaning it is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not an option for those whom he calls into his gospel ministry. This is an order from headquarters. You must preach the word. This word preach means to herald, to proclaim, to lift up the voice, to declare the message, to do so publicly. In the first century, this word represented the messenger who would be dispatched from Caesar's throne. There would be a great victory that would have been won. New nation annexed into the Roman Empire, or Caesar would would give birth to a son. And the, the royal messenger would be sent out to the extremities of the empire. They would have no way of knowing what has taken place back at the nerve center of the empire. And so a a herald would be dispatched, and he would go into a smaller town, and he would gather the citizens around him, and he would cup his hands, and he would lift his voice and be like a crier, something like, hear ye, hear ye, the empire has won a great victory. And there was to be no negotiation There was to be no discussion. It was a declaration. And there the citizens were to receive the message. And it was to be delivered in the authority of Caesar himself. And it was to be delivered in a manner that would reflect the dignity of his high throne. Having discharged the duty... He was to immediately return to Rome, to stop nowhere along the way, and there be ready to receive the next message that is to go forth from Caesar through his lips. That is the very word that is used here. It speaks of a royal spokesman who brings a message from from a higher throne, and it is to be given to those who gather around. That's what Paul was saying to Timothy. Timothy, you are to to go into all the world, and you are an ambassador of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you are to lift up your voice, and you are to cry out the message, and you are to declare with authority what God has written in the Word. Please note, he says, preach the Word. We really find both elements of expository preaching in these three words. The word refers to the exposition, the substance of the message. Preach refers to the manner of the delivery. We are to preach the word. Please note, not a word, as if our message is one of many messages that are competing for the rightful attention of the listener. No, it speaks of the exclusivity of the message that, that we bring. It refers to the written Word of God mentioned earlier in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. It refers to the message in verse 15, the sacred writings. This is the call for expository preaching. And such preaching starts with the Word. It stays with the Word. It is supported by the Word and other passages in the Word. In reality, the preacher has nothing to say apart from the Word of God. Because our fundamental commitment is when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so we must preach the Word. And that was at the heart of the Reformation when sola scriptura became the battle cry of Europe with the Protestants. Scripture alone. They also had another Latin phrase, tota scriptura, which meant all Scripture. We are to preach only the Scripture, and we are to preach all the Scripture, and that is what expository preaching is, and that is what Paul is charging Timothy. Earlier in 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, he said, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. 
to exhortation and to teaching. Those three headings is what biblical preaching is. Read the text, explain the text, apply the text, move on to the next text. And that is what Paul is calling Timothy to do here. Preach the Word. There's no time for personal opinions, no time for worldly philosophy, no time for moral dissertations or religious traditions, no time for political preferences or or book reviews. There is simply to be the preaching of the Word of God. And preaching goes beyond teaching. All preaching has teaching at its base. All preaching begins with teaching, the opening up of the meaning of a passage of Scripture. But preaching goes beyond teaching. Preaching stands on the shoulders of teaching. Preaching reaches yet higher. Teaching is one mind reaching another mind. Devotion is one heart reaching another heart. But preaching is the mind and the heart and the will of the preacher addressing the mind and the heart and the will of the listener. It is the total package. All preaching is not only to renew the mind, but it is to ignite the heart, to sting the conscience, to raise the affections, to comfort the soul, to challenge the will, to lift up the spirit. Preaching is to light up, fire up, and hold up the listener. I remember one Sunday evening at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles... Someone other than John MacArthur was preaching. And I was sitting next to Dr. MacArthur that Sunday evening. It was a very correct message. It was a very well-laid-out message, but it had no preaching. It was just a lecture. It was just an exegetical digest. It was a data dump. And I remember when the message was over... As we got up from the pew, Dr. MacArthur said to me, there was no wow factor. It was dead orthodoxy. It was true and it was boring. In the manner in which it was brought forth to the congregation... There is a difference between teaching and preaching. Now, I agree with R.C. Sproul, who has said to me, Steve, all of my teaching is preaching and all my preaching is teaching. And I understand that. But there is a difference. A young man once came to Martin Lloyd-Jones and said, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? Lloyd-Jones said, young man... If you have to ask me the difference between preaching and teaching, it is obvious you have never heard preaching. Because if you had heard preaching, you would know the difference. Lloyd-Jones went on to say, teaching is lecturing. And a lecture can be given tomorrow, it can be given next week, it can be given next month, it can be given next semester, it can be given next year, it can be given at any time, but a sermon, Lloyd-Jones said, must be delivered now. It must be preached today. It must come with a sense of, of urgency, and it must make demands upon the listener now. You must choose this day whom you will serve. When the preacher stands to preach, the pulpit serves as a fork in the road by which men must decide, and women, which way they will go. What does Paul tell Timothy? Preach the Word. And as you deliver the Word, call for the verdict in the life of the listener. Do you preach the Word? Is there a fervency in your soul? Is there a sense of urgency as you preach? Do you preach, as Richard Baxter said, as a dying man to dying men, as never to preach again? Do you lift your voice? Do you seek to persuade? 
Do you urge? Do you teach the text? Do you stay with the text? This is the call of God upon our lives. And to do anything other is to go AWOL from the orders that have come down to us. Now finally, I want you to note the specifics of this charge. Beginning in the middle of verse 2 and extending through the end of verse 5, Paul will now tell Timothy how to preach the Word. I want to say again, it matters to God how we preach the Word. God now dictates how His Word is to be handled as Paul says this to Timothy. What will now follow, as I've already indicated, are eight imperatives. These are non-negotiable. And as we look at these eight, this is not multiple choice. It's not that we get to pick two out of the eight. It's not that Baptists have their four and the Presbyterians have the other four. It's not that we're going through a buffet line. And I'll have some exhortation today, but no fulfilling the ministry. Uh, I'll do the work of an evangelist, but I don't want to reprove and rebuke. Now, these are like eight links on a chain that are all inseparably bound together, and it's all or nothing as Paul makes his case to Timothy and to you and me. Let's look at these very quickly. What are the specifics of this charge? First of all, we are to preach faithfully. Notice he says, be ready in season and out of season. The verb is be ready. You and I are to live in a state of of alertness and preparation, a a readiness, if you will. Uh, There is to be a sense of urgency that is pushing us forward to be ready to preach in season and out of season. And that is a proverbial expression, in season and out of season, is another way of saying 24-7. Now, there is no season that is not in season or out of season. That covers the the whole gambit. It it is a, a figurative way of saying, Timothy, you need to preach when it's convenient and when it's not convenient, when it is easy and when it is hard when it is well-received and when it is not well-received, when it is welcomed and when it is not welcomed, Timothy, you are to always be locked and loaded and your finger is on the trigger. There is never a time and never a place when the preaching of the Word of God is out of place. There is no time that is not in season or out of season. And it is another way of saying, Timothy... You need to be always preaching the Word. I agree with George Whitfield. The more we preach, the better we preach. I think most preachers never reach their potential because they do not preach enough to master their calling. If you were trying to play the piano, do you think more practice, less practice would be helpful? The more you practice, the more proficient you become with it. And Paul is telling Timothy here, you need to be always preaching the Word of God. This is what we do. Second, to preach it confrontively. The next imperative verb is reprove. Timothy, as you stand to preach, you must reprove. It correlates in verse 16 with all Scripture is profitable for reproof. The idea on reproof is to expose sin, to bring sin out into the open. It's kind of the opposite of the Joel Olstein approach to the pulpit. You are to expose wrong attitudes, wrong actions, wrong beliefs, and of course that involves preaching the law which is given to reveal sin. And you are to expose sin as sin, not not a mistake, uh, not an error, but as a violation of the holiness of God and as a departure from the Word of God. 
George Knight in his commentary on the pastoral epistles writes, Timothy is charged here to speak to those who are in error or doing wrong and to attempt to convince them of that. And this requires preaching in such a manner that is heart-searching, that is intended to shine the light of divine revelation into the hearts and the souls of men. This is the way Jesus preached. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus addressed the false religious system of the day, He said, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. It's not just the outward action, it's the heart that must be addressed. And Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and Jesus presses now onto the live nerve that's beneath the surface. Jesus is, is probing yet deeper into those to whom he is addressing. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is heart-searching preaching that reproves. Jesus is peeling back the outer layers of men's lives until he reaches the innermost level. So it must be with our preaching. It's not just the outward action, but even the inner motive and the inner attitude and the inner priority that must be addressed in preaching the Word. Third, correctively. He uses the word rebuke. Again, it's in the imperative uh, mood. It It is a command. Timothy, as you stand with an open Bible and preach the Word, there must be an element of rebuke as well. This correlates what we see earlier in verse 16. All Scripture is profitable for correction. To rebuke is to correct. It is to put the one who is shown their error, to put them back onto the right path. It is preaching that calls for repentance. It is preaching that calls for a change of direction. It is preaching that warns of negative consequences. It is preaching that is used to bring the listener under conviction in order that they might choose a new path and the new direction to pursue. It is not hyper-grace preaching, that it really doesn't matter how you live, because it's, it's just all forgiven by Christ. To the total contrary, there is this element of rebuke, and that is how Jesus preached as well. And Jesus said, if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you. And Jesus said, if you give so as to be seen by men, then you will have no reward in heaven. And Jesus said, if you have hatred for others, then you will be guilty enough before the court, and you will be guilty enough to go down into the fiery hell. It was preaching that had teeth in it preaching that has much grace, and we shall soon arrive at that, but also preaching that holds people accountable for their actions and for their attitudes. Fourth, the kind of preaching that is called for in this text, it must also be preaching that is brought passionately. Note the next word, exhort, parakaleo, to come alongside. The idea metaphorically is that the preacher, as it were, would come out of the pulpit and come alongside the listener as though putting his hand upon the shoulder of the listener or putting his arm around the, the shoulder of the listener and directly applying the text to that person's life. And to do so in such a way that there is urging and persuading and appealing, and entreating, and beseeching. 
You see, in true preaching of the Scripture, it's not enough just to lay out the facts. It's not enough just to speak in indicative statements the entire message. It's not enough simply to repeat the meaning of the text. There must be elements of exhortation, elements of bringing an an influence to bear, to, to plead with the listener to pursue the right course of action. It has been well said by the Princetonian divines of the 19th century, J.W. Alexander, if there is no summons, there is no sermon. We must be always pointing men and women to the way of the Lord, to the narrow path that leads to life and coming alongside of them and even lifting them up and encouraging them and and edifying them so that they will pursue this right course of, of action. Now, he says how we are to exhort. He says with great patience. And this word patience is the idea of bearing up under trials. What is implied here is that as the preacher reproves and rebukes, there's going to be some resistance. There's going to be some pushback. The charter members may not like this. This was their church before you got here. And so, this is to be carried out with not just patience, with great patience, being willing to suffer unjustly, if called upon, as we bring the ministry of the Word and giving time for people to process the truth that is being brought to them and to continue to bring it again and again and again, but to be patient. Many a time I've left my home, and as I go out the front door, my wife will reopen the front door and she will say to me, remember with great patience. Ouch. But that doesn't mean we don't say what needs to be said. It actually means we keep on saying it with great patience. Also, he says, and instruction, didache, the apostles' teaching. And that implies that We are to continue with the instruction, who God is, what God requires, why God requires it, how God desires us to live it out. But this instruction, this this doctrinal teaching, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what is preaching? It is theology on fire. That is what is needed if we are to have another reformation and another great awakening. It will require theology on fire. Lloyd-Jones says, preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, if people do not like the doctrines of grace, give them all the more of it. I came across in the writings of A.W. Pink an interesting little subsection in a book entitled, Why Doctrinal Preaching Declines. It is dated December 1939. This could just as easily be dated January 2014. He gives three reasons why doctrinal teaching declines. Number one, laziness. He says it is a far more exacting task one has which calls for a much closer confinement in the study. It demands a far wider acquaintance with the Scriptures, a far more rigid disciplining of the mind, and a far more extensive perusal of the older writers. Much easier just to be popular and pragmatic than to dig down deep. Second, he says, a desire for popularity. We can understand that. He says, he quotes Galatians 1 verse 10, if I be 
For if I yet please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. He goes on to speak of how men desiring to be popular and preside in large ministries round off the edges of their doctrinal teaching in order to find acceptance with the masses. And then finally, he says, a superficial lopsided evangelism, as though theology would get in the way of people coming to faith in Christ. It's a word for us today. There's a fifth reason, or a fifth uh, specific on how to preach the Word, and it is the word soberly. And you'll find it at the beginning of verse 5, but the, the lead-up begins in verse 3. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The they refers to unbelievers who are in the church who need to be evangelized, as verse 5 will say, the they also can refer to those who are saved in the church, but who are very shallow and superficial in their Christianity. He says they will not endure sound doctrine. They, they, will, they won't put up with strong expository preaching. They love the jokes. They love the illustrations, the human interest stories, the cultural updates, the trends in society. They will actually fire the Bible teacher and hire the communicator. But wanting to have their ears tickled, what a picture that is. In other words, tell people what they want to hear and make people feel good about themselves. Be a backslapper, be an ego massager, be a, an ear tickler. He says that's what they will want. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, when I was a physician, I never let the patient write the prescription. And as a preacher, I never let the congregation set the message. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They will turn aside to the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. They will turn aside to just superficial, trivial handling of the Word. And when the truth is brought to them, they will turn away from the truth he says in verse 5, but you, Timothy, you are to stand out like a star on a dark night. You, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things. And the word be sober means to be free of all intoxicants. It means to be level-headed. It means to be not caught up with what people want to hear from you in the pulpit. You don't be intoxicated and cave in to be a people pleaser in your ministry. You be sober. Don't tone down the message. Preach the Word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Do not compromise, Timothy. Be sober in all things. And in all things means across the board. You be a man of God. You be your own man. And not a puppet on a string. Six, tenaciously. He says, endure hardship. Verse 5, endure hardship. The ministry will be very demanding. And part of the demand will be the hardship that will be brought upon you as a result of the message. When I was in high school, I was the quarterback of the football team. We had a great football team. I'd go to the pep rallies. They would give me the trophies, the awards. Everyone would clap and cheer. I went off to college, played football in college, went to the Friday night pep rallies in the stadium. The sororities are there, fraternities, the cheerleaders, the band, the student body the alumni, everyone patting you on the back, cheering you on. 
Then I went to seminary. And then I went into the ministry. No sororities. No cheerleaders. No band. A lot of critics. There's hardship that comes. I know what it is to stand in the pulpit and be told they're going to take over the pulpit while you're preaching. They're going to vote you out on the spot. I know what it is to have to get a babysitter to keep the kids at home because it's going to be ugly tonight at church. I know what it is to have my twin boys drive the getaway car away from church, have them stop, get out of the car, take my shoes off my feet, shake the dust off my shoes, get back in the car and say, drive me home now. There's tough times when we preach the Bible, when we preach the Word of God. Paul is telling Timothy, you may end up just like I'm ending up. You may end up in a prison cell in a hole in the ground, awaiting your execution. You need to endure hardship, young man. And that is what God says to us as well. As we preach the word in the ministry, many times we stir up a hornet's nest. And we're going to have to endure hardship. The front of my preaching Bible, I keep a picture of John Rogers, 1500-1555. That is the year Bloody Mary began her martyrdom of the Protestant ministers. John Rogers was the first Marian martyr. When I go to London, I go to Bunhill Fields and then I go to Smithfield. I go to Bunhill Fields where the Puritans are buried. The men that we idolized, they were such outcasts, they were buried outside the city limits. They were deemed unworthy to even be buried within London. That's where John Owen is. That's where Isaac Watts is. That's where John Bunyan is buried. Outside what was then the city limits. I go to Smithfield where John Rogers was strapped to a stake and burned to death. His crime was translating the Bible into the English language, finishing Tyndale's work, and saying the Lord's Supper is not the Mass. There's a price to pay for all of us in the preaching of the Word of God. And as someone has well said, the problem with preachers today is nobody wants to kill them anymore. Because we're just everybody's buddy. It's like church is a sleepover. And how we need to be pastors and yet prophets and to proclaim the word of the Lord. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Remember that our Bible is a blood-stained book. The blood of the martyrs is on the Bible. The blood of Bible translators is on this book. The doctrines which we preach to you are doctrines that have been baptized in blood. Swords have been drawn to slay the confessors of these truths. And there is not a truth which has not been sealed by them at the stake or at the block where they have been slain by the hundreds. When I used to play football, my coach used to say, you don't get a game jersey until you get some blood on your practice jersey. You show me some blood on your practice jersey, and there'll be a game jersey hanging in your locker tomorrow. It's the same in ministry. We need some blood on our game jersey. And we need to stand strong, speak with grace, and speak with love, but to be men who will roar like a lion as in days of old. Two more and we're finished. We must also preach evangelistically. Look in verse 5, he says, Do the work of an evangelist. 
I think in the context here, he is saying that that would begin in his own church membership. It's been well said that the church's first mission field is its own membership. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many wondrous works? And I will say unto them in that day, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. As you preach the word week by week by week, Timothy, as you stand before God's people, you are to continue to do the work of the evangelist, and not to assume that everyone who is religious is converted. We are to do it evangelistically. We are to preach the gospel. We are to call for repentance. We are to call for the necessary evidence of the new birth. We are to preach the narrogate. We are to preach the demands of taking up a cross and following after the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to say to people, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We are to be calling people to Christ. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Finally, at the end of verse 5, the specifics we are to preach fully. He says, fulfill your ministry. Literally, that means fill full. Fill to the full all that God has put in His Word. Don't preach half the truth. Preach the whole truth. Half a truth is no truth. Satan is full of half-truths. Tell it all, Timothy. Tell the whole story. Discharge the whole truth. Leave nothing unsaid. Leave no doctrine untaught. Leave no truth unexplained. Leave no sin unrebuked. Leave no warning ungiven. Timothy preached the full counsel of God. From A to Z, the Alpha and the Omega. Don't just preach your pet doctrines. Preach the full counsel of God, and you will fulfill your ministry. People have asked me, when I first met John MacArthur, I was in Memphis, Tennessee, to hear him preach at a conference. And I heard him preach a powerful sermon. That next morning, I had the privilege of meeting him and having breakfast with him, and I had him write that sentence in my Bible. It hangs in my office. It's framed now. He said this, Now is the time for the strongest men to preach the strongest message in the context of the strongest ministry. That sentence just leaped into my heart. And I said, God, I want to be one of those strongest men in this generation. Whether anyone ever hears of me or not, whether no matter what the future holds, on the last day... I want you to say that by your grace, you made me one of the strongest men. And to preach in the context of the strongest ministry. That the word of God would make strong the men around me. And the ministries around me. And that I would bring the strongest message. That would be a challenge I would bring to you as we begin this conference. May you say within your own heart, and I believe this would be honoring to God and glorifying of God, for you to say within your own heart and soul, I want to be one of the strongest men who bring the strongest message in the context of the strongest ministry. And by God's grace, 
for God to use me in whatever sphere of influence He would have for me. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and by His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn their ears away from the truth and turn instead to myths. But you be sober in all things. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And on the last day, by God's grace, may we have kept the orders that have come down to us. Let us pray. Father, what an enormous calling you have laid at our feet. This is beyond any of us in this room. To take your word and to break it down and to accurately handle it and then to stand before men and women and to say, thus says the Lord. And to do so in a way that does not compromise your truth and does so in a way that will lead people to faith in Christ and will be used to build the church. Lord, Who is adequate for these things? Certainly none of us in and of ourselves. Lord, I pray that you, by your indwelling Holy Spirit and by your all-sufficient grace, I pray that you will make us adequate to fulfill what you've called us to do. Would you use the time that remains today and tomorrow and the following day as a parenthesis in time where we can put our shoulder to the plow and devote ourselves to sharpening our skills in this.